African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Good morning. Thank you for joining us for yet another interactive installment of African Dialogue. Thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm Benjamin Mushatam. I'm back with you once again. And you're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And online, you're listening to us on www.channelafrica.co.za. Today, we're going to be looking at the issue of uh, water and how we use it on the continent. But before that, let's get our news update from Anne Musa. In the headlines, Nigeria's federal police chief orders restrictions on movement on election day. A renowned Angolan journalist on trial on charges of defaming military generals and growing insecurity in Yemen threatens children already among the most vulnerable on earth. Good morning. Nigeria's federal police chief has ordered restrictions on movement on election day on Saturday. This as the country goes to the polls to choose a new president and parliament. Identical restrictions will be put in place on the 11th of April for gubernatorial and state assembly polls. Security has been a major concern for the general election. Nigeria's electoral commission were forced to postpone the vote last month because of the deadly Boko Haram insurgency. The decision was made after the country his national security advisor said soldiers deployed on operations to fight the Islamist militants would be unable to provide security if required. A renowned Angolan journalist has been put on trial on charges of defaming military generals. Rafael Marquez de Mores accused seven generals of being linked to murder, torture and land grabs in Angola's lucrative diamond fields. Several people were reportedly arrested for protesting against the trial. De Mores is a long-standing critic of President José Eduardo dos Santos. 
Mali is a critical point in its efforts to find peace while massive human rights violations continue there. Addressing the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, Special Rapporteur Suleiman Baldo says armed groups in the north of the country regularly violated ceasefires and operated with impunity. The rights expert called on separatist fighters to respect human rights and for the Malian government to extend justice to all civilians. Baldo says the government's absence in the north following an increase in attacks bolstered the climate of impunity. The withdrawal of civilian Malian authorities from entire areas of the north following the events of May 2014, particularly the lack of judges and other employees in the criminal justice system, have only enhanced the spirit of impunity that has set in the north. UN Children's Fund UNICEF says growing insecurity in Yemen threatens children who are already among the most vulnerable on earth. Figures from the UN agency indicate a sharp spike in the number of children killed or mimed in attacks in 2014 compared with a year earlier. The development follows attacks on mosques and Sana'a in recent days, which killed at least 137 people, including 13 children. Daniel Johnson has more. The spiraling violence risks are setting back hard-earned gains for Yemeni children as competing forces fight for control of the country, UNICEF said. The UN agency cited a 40% increase in the number of boys and girls killed and maimed in 2014 compared with 2013. Although figures have yet to be released, UNICEF said that attacks on schools and hospitals had doubled over the same period. Meanwhile, the recruitment of children in armed groups was up 47%. And finally, the debate regarding the removal of British colonialist Cecil John Rhodes statues in South Africa has spread to neighbouring Zimbabwe. This follows protests by a group of students in South Africa at the University of Cape Town to have a statue of Rhodes removed and now a campaign by Zimbabwe's Zanopev supporters to do away with his grave in Bulawayo. They've urged that his body be removed from its grave, its grave rather, for reburial in Britain. Recapping the top stories, Nigeria's federal police chief orders restrictions on movement on election day. A renowned Angolan journalist on trial on charges after faming military generals and growing insecurity in Yemen threatens children already among the most vulnerable on earth. Well, thank you for joining us and thank you to Anne Musa for that particular update and uh, congratulations to her because she's been nominated as one of the finalists from the MTN uh, Radio uh, Media Awards here on in South Africa. So that's fantastic. Also, uh, Amanda Majaka from our news team has also been uh, a part of the finalists there. So congratulations to some of our team members for being some of the best in South Africa in terms of broadcasting. We're really proud of uh, our members here on Channel Africa. But you are listening to African Dialogue and I think that uh, uh, you are listening to us on uh, the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band uh, and uh, you are listening to us on the meter band to Southern Africa. I'm going to take a little break right now because I'm having some technology problems currently, but we'll be back after this. 
African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more co- cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, and today we're going to be looking at uh, the uh, story, really looking at uh, water usage and shortage in the world, specifically looking at the African continent. We know that climate change is said to be a contributing factor to how we need to be using water wisely. And the United Nations uh, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon recently wrote that to address the many challenges relating to water, we must work in a spirit of urgent cooperation open up to new ideas and innovation and be prepared to share the solutions that we all need for a sustainable future. Now, uh, the statistics are, are a bit uh, concerning. Statistics suggest that 748 million people around the world do not have access to clean drinking water. An everyday woman around the world spent about 200 hours carrying water. That means on average women in these regions spend about 25% of their day collecting water for their families. Now, to look at this issue of water, we are joined on the line by Dr. Mateis uh, Dipenar, who is uh, from the Geology Department of the University of Pretoria. And also we're joined by Dr. Tabon Gambule, who is from UNISA, which is the University of South Africa, from the Nanotechnology and Water Sustainability Research Unit, and from Greenpeace Africa, the climate and energy campaigner, uh, Melita Steele, also joins us on the line. But hey, I want to look at this uh, particular statistic and I want to start with you, uh, Dr. Ngambule. The numbers are high of people without access to improved water supply. As I stated just now, the statistics record up to 750 million people. What are the main reasons people do not have access to efficient uh, water supplies on the continent? Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure being on your show. Uh, uh, there are so many reasons why we have got the water scarcity on the continent. It moves from um, a situation where our governments are not taking good care of our infrastructure, as well as us as African continent being not doing enough to actually utilize the resources that we have. Our people are, are not are not well educated on the crisis that we have. Our government is. Uh, we, we, we have got mixed up priorities and we're not channeling those resources to ensuring that we have uh, sustainable water resources to the people. And of course, we have issues uh, where we have a water scarcity due to climate-induced problems as well as uh, the high industrialization and increase in the population growth of the African continent. 
And let me bring in Dr. Mateus uh, Dipanar into this uh, conversation from the University of uh, Pretoria. Doctor, as uh, 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 Dr. Ngambula highlights, various factors there, infrastructure challenges, water scarcity, also a high demand when it comes to uh, industrialization on the continent. What are some of the other factors that you can highlight? Why are we struggling for this uh, access to efficient water supply on the continent? Good morning and thank you for having me. Yes, I think Dr. Nkambule had many of the right points there. And adding on to that, people maybe underestimate the cost of water. In other words, if we want to construct dams, reticulate water, treat water, those are very, very high costs for a basic human need, which is basically free of charge at the low consumption rate. So coupled with the cost and the wastage, because no one really bothers to preserve water, I think we are just overcapitalizing on supplying water to the wrong places maybe sometimes, and in the end we don't preserve our water resources well enough. And let me finally bring in uh, Green uh, Peace Africa Climate and Energy Campaigner, Melita Steele. Melita Steele, this is very concerning because water is supposed to be a human rights uh, uh, issue. It's supposed to be accessible to all. It's something that we all need on the continent. Why are we struggling as the continent to make sure that our people have adequate access to water? Well, I think that um, a lot of the reasons have already been mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, infrastructure is hugely important when it comes to water supplies. Um, but I think the one thing that hasn't yet been spoken about is climate change and the impacts of climate change. So um, climate change is a long-term change in um, global temperatures um, resulting in extreme weather conditions such as drought and floods. Um, and it actually acts as a threat multiplier. So you're seeing people on the African continent um, who are already vulnerable due to um, poverty are actually on the front line of climate change. Um, And at the same time, you're seeing uh, huge levels of already existing water scarcity even before you add climate change to it. So, for example, South Africa um, has very low levels of rainfall compared to the global average. Um, But at the same time, there are huge inputs that go into energy production. So South Africa gets 90% of its electricity from coal. Um, And as a result of that, ESCOM actually uses 10,000 litres of water per second to keep this country's coal-fired power stations burning. Mm. Um, And so as far as Greenpeace is concerned, the, the types of energy choices and also climate change, but also investments in infrastructure... Um, are three of the key issues. And also, I I wanted to come back to that particular issue of what we mean by an efficient water supply, because sometimes we can use these definitions without really understanding them. Dr. Tabon Kambule, what do we mean by this, an efficient water supply? Um, It also goes up to, for instance, for example, we have got various needs for water. And each of the various needs of water needs various solutions. So we need to have a a situation where we can actually supply water to the people uh, in terms of what they actually need. And what we have at the moment is that we have a situation where we can't actually supply the right type of water for the right type of for the right type of of usage. So we, we end up running in a situation where we have a shortage water supply 
sometimes due to the reason that we don't have enough water, but most of the time that's not the reason. For example, um, as, uh, as the, the previous panelists have said, we need energy to deliver water to the people. And if, for example, in South Africa, ESCOM, which is the power supplying community, runs into a power shortage, that means we can't be able to pump water to the people. So we will look like we have a water shortage, while in case, in actually, in case we don't have a water shortage at that moment, but we actually have a problem with power resulting to the people not having enough water. Or in some cases, we've got places which are dry and there is not enough rainfall and therefore we don't have enough water supply to the people. So the issue of water supply is quite different and it depends on the type of usages and other things that we have. And also looking at uh, the way that uh, the... uh country, South Africa, or the continent and other countries as well, not just South Africa, because we, we're looking at the continent in itself. Uh, it's very much structured whereby we have uh, rural areas which uh, um, maybe are not as uh, well uh, managed when it comes to infrastructure or s- still needs to be a lot to be done in terms of infrastructure in those particular areas in rural settlements and rural areas. Uh, coming to you, Dr. Mateus Dipenard, in terms of actually accelerating that uh, infrastructure backlog in those infrastructural uh, areas or that inf- uh, rural uh, landscape, how do we uh, reverse this particular cycle? Because it seems to be something that we still haven't addressed as a continent. Yes, I agree with that. I think to a large extent we are looking at the wrong portions of the water cycle in rural areas because there seems to be a general perception that water that you can see is water that you can trust. And I think to save costs and to make water more readily available, one should definitely start looking more actively into the groundwater options, where you don't lose water to evaporation as quickly, you don't have to construct dams, and the quality is a bit more protected by the soil and rock overlying it. So I think a starting point might be to change people's perceptions into knowing that dam water is not the only drinkable water. And so how do you actually find other water resources? What are the alternatives, Dr. Dipenar? In finding the alternative water, it will basically mean initially going to look for the aquifers that bears the groundwater in the approximate regions, and then it's a matter of drilling boreholes and working out how much water you can pump from them, and it generally requires minimal use of minimal treatment, pardon me, whereas the use of surface water will require treatment to some extent to prevent disease spreading because very often in those areas surface water might be contaminated because you sit with livestock and agricultural practices. And also, uh, also consultation in these particular areas can be sometimes an issue. Uh, and maybe let me come back to you, Dr. Tabon Kambule, staying with these rural areas. Do you think there should be more involvement of traditional leaders and communities within those leaders, within those uh, communities rather, to actually make sure that uh, we facilitate these processes faster and we find out the needs from the people themselves in these rural areas? Indeed, I couldn't have said it any better. We need a lot of engagement of everyone. Like I say, the, the challenge that we have in Africa sometimes is that we as Africans want to always employ a top-down approach, yet that is not necessarily always the case. 
we need to employ a bottom-up approach where we get the people on the ground who are actually affected by this crisis to, to be conscientized and actually realize the extent of the crisis that we have. For starters, we get everybody to acknowledge and understand that water is not just a free, cheap resource that we can use and abuse. Water, we need to treat water as much as we treat our families and as, as well as we treat our families. And if we get that to the people, and then we move to the traditional leaders and um, as, as speak with the traditional leaders and get them to a point where they uh, they help part of the development and and, and, and and be responsible citizens and government in ensuring that what we do to, to provide water for the people goes to the right stage. And of course, you are, you are very much right and you are on, on track when you say that we should perhaps, if we go to the rural areas, like you said earlier, uh, it's been said that we spend, women spend over 200 hours picking up water. So if we go to the rural areas and and engage them as a government and as a people in our development to ensure that we have clean, safe drinking water for the people. Well, we're going to take a little break right now. We've got Dr. Mateus Dipenar from the University of uh, Pretoria. He is uh, at the Geology Department of the University. And Dr. Uh, Tabon Gambule is joining us from uh, UNISA. Uh, and he is from the Nanotechnology and Water Sustainability Research Unit. And also on the line is Melita Steele uh, from the Greenpeace Africa Climate and Energy Campaigner. She is. And also, I want to come back to you, Melita, after this particular break, because I want to look at the issue of uh, how climate change is actually changing the way we see water. We know that uh, uh, it is said to uh, be receiving half of the world's rainfall, Africa that is. And uh, we know that uh, the world's rainfall sometimes is falling on remote mountain catchments. How is that affecting uh, our water supplies? But we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with our experts after this. Always missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on Listen and enjoy Channel Africa Radio. It's as easy as that. Channel Africa Radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, you are listening to African Dialogue. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. And you are listening to us online on www.channelafrica.co.za. And remember, if you're listening to us on your radio set, it's on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Well, today we're talking about water. And because uh, this is a week that water has been emphasized a lot, and uh, we've heard some 
statistics when we started the program and we cited some of the statistics which suggest that 750 million people around the world do not have access to clean drinking water and also the concern also when when we see some of these statistics is that every day women around the world spend about 200 hours carrying water that's all about access actually and that time could be spent on something else more productive for these particular women and on the line we're joined by Dr. Matej Stepanar who is from the University of Pretoria from the Geology Department and also we have uh, Malita Steele from Greenpeace Africa the climate and energy campaign I think we've uh, lost her I think we've just uh, uh, spoken to her now we have just have uh, Dr. Chris Moseki from the Department of Water and Sanitation and uh, he is a part of climate change research there in South Africa and also I think we still have Dr. Tabun Gambule who is uh, from UNISA's Nanotechnology and Water Sustainability Research Unit and also I want to look at this issue from uh, your perspective Dr. Mateis Dipenar. I wanted to actually address this with Melita Steele but we had to let her go because of her schedule but looking at the water levels apparently Africa is receiving half of the world's rainfall and it's falling on remote mountain catchments. Uh, what is happening in this regard Dr. Dipenar? because it should be a concern isn't it? Well, yes, a lot of the rainfall does fall in the highlands and the um, upper areas. But the problem is typically that that water is not concentrated where the need is. People tend to develop around water, but very often the developments are not in close proximity of that surface water where the rainfall is concentrated. So the problem is still that downstream you don't necessarily sit with all that water reaching the downstream rural developments. And obviously, the longer water is exposed to the surface, the more it gets subjected to possible contamination. So it is a bit of a problem and a concern, but we are, I think, in the continent trying to utilize what's available, and it's just about preserving the quality of the water over time. And also, I'm also interested in how we can actually find alternative ways to uh, utilize that particular water in those particular catchments. Dr. Tabung Kambule, is there a way that we can actually find ways to actually access that uh, water falling on those uh, remote mountain catchments? Yes, there should be ways, but this also bothers around issues of transboundary politics of water. For example, we we if we in South Africa, we we have Lesotho as a, as a, our catchment area. We buy water from the Lesotho Highland Water Project, which we transport to to the Val and in Trinidad and for anything. Now, interestingly, we buy clean water from Lesotho because of our corrected distribution system. It gets polluted as it comes to South Africa, and then we have to reclean it again. But um, uh, if you look at the government of Lesotho and the government of South Africa, they've come into a collaborative engagement where um, the Houten Houten, uh, province realizes that they are not in a good space to have uh, good catchment areas because of the relatively flat nature of the province. And then because Lesotho is mountainous and therefore it's a good catchment area, uh, the South African government and the Lesotho government went into a bilateral agreement where we buy water from Lesotho and in exchange the South African government gets involved in some development of the Lesotho government. So yes, we can, but we, we, we need to, to have an inter 
collaborative link between governments to sort the politics of accessing because not all of the African countries are, are mountainous and therefore they can't be catchment areas. So one solution will be to have um, an interlinked collaboration between the governments uh, involved in this transboundary politics of the aquifers of the water. And another thing is also we also have aquifers in in the water table, which we are not exploring, we actually not even uh, using the rightful technology to get that water from the ground. Uh, like I said before, what we need right now is a huge drive amongst all the African governments to first get the right skills for using, for uh, being able to address and uh, and find means of getting to the water that we have um, where we can't have water. But the, the challenge at the moment is that we are challenging our skills development to other aspects and not looking at the looming water crisis. Uh, and if we continue doing that, then of course, unfortunately, we will only hit the panic button once it's already too late. Yet we can start engaging in the rightful process at this moment and getting hold of uh, those waters in the catchment areas, for example. Of course, we didn't with having agreements between the necessary and the governments involved in this process. And I think you're bringing an important element here, which is governance, and maybe that makes us uh, introduce Dr. Chris Museki from South Africa's Department of Water and Sanitation from the uh, Climate Change Research Unit there. Uh, let me just, before I come to you, Dr. Chris Museki, let me just highlight what one of your colleagues highlighted on the Saturday Star this past weekend, which is a South African newspaper, William Moraka, who's a director of water services and sanitation at the South African Local Government Association. Association. He was highlighting the importance of governance. He was saying we need good governance in areas of responding to the post-democracy water challenges. He says these must be spearheaded by the Minister of Water and Sanitation. He says that we must urgently redefine water resources usage and planning trajectory. And he was highlighting that uh, the main challenges are that uh, statistics reveal that 35% of clean water drinking at domestic level is used for gardening, 29% for flushing, 20% for bathing, 13% for laundry, 3% for cooking and drinking. It's clear that we are not utilizing clean drinking water optimally. And these are the issues that William Moraka is highlighting here. How can we change the way that South Africans or other Africans around the world, I'm I'm sure it's not just a South African phenomenon, utilize water? Because it seems like year after year, we're actually drumming in the same message, but people are not getting that message, uh, Dr. Museki. Okay, thank you very much for, for, for inviting me to, to the discussion. Indeed, I think William, uh, in what he alluded to, is, is very true. I think what is key is really sustainable management and sustainable use of the results. Maybe I should first say, although it is said government should do this or that, this is not the government's responsibility alone. I think the sooner as South Africans we begin to realize that it is a responsibility of everyone to ensure that we all use water sparingly, the better because we are actually a water-thirsty country. And as you indicated, South Africa's rainfall itself under natural condition is half the world's average, and water is very much skewed to certain areas and very little in other areas. So the water, the, the, the 
the, the, the limited resource that we have, we need to use sparingly. I think government on its side has done a lot because we've just had the water week. During the, during the National Water Week, uh, messages go out that we should use water sparingly. Government Department of Water and Sanitation has got various programs that are aimed at ensuring efficiency. For example, War on Water Leaks, which is also a program that is being done in collaboration with the local government and municipalities. I think what is important is that we should all consider ourselves as being part of the solution. And in terms of ensuring that there is access, I think one of the things is not only to look up to tapping into the main pipelines, but also to develop the resources where we are. One of the colleagues who we were interviewed earlier alluded to the issue of groundwater. Groundwater is very, very much important. We know as a department that the utilizable potential of groundwater in South Africa is around 5 billion cubic meters per year, and of course we know that the current use is almost half that, which means there is a, a room for improvement. There is a room for development of more water, of additional water sources and so on. And we shouldn't only look at one source, because in South Africa, marketly people just want to depend on surface water, and they forget about the groundwater, they forget about uh, things like desalination of seawater, they forget about things like rainwater harvesting, fog harvesting. The, the technology is there, and I think the will should be there for everybody to pitch in. But however, in mm. terms of using water sustainably and ensuring that we save water, it's everyone's responsibility. Mm, we all know the mm. first thing you do when you wake up, what do you use? Water. Before you go to sleep, what do you use? Water. So water is life. Water is cross-cutting. Water is central to every development and for every user and for the livelihood of resource-poor communities out there. So it's very important for all of us to be part of this game. Do- Dr. Misweki, sorry to cut you off there because you highlighted something very pivotal earlier on about the various alternatives water supplies that we can draw from but what is government doing to make sure that we have those initiatives taking off are we partnering enough with uh, uh, the private industry to make sure that we have uh, uh, these uh, uh, facilities or these spaces utilized so that we can actually uh, maximize how we utilize water from an excess perspective of course i just alluded to the fact that we partner with the local government in fact most of the projects that we undertake as government, we undertake in partnership with um, various uh, communities out there, various consultants, various institutions. We partner with, uh, for example, the, the Water Research Commission uh, is producing a number of uh, research outcomes, which, of course, needs to be implemented and be used to be able to address some of the problems in terms of ensuring access. We are also in partnership with even other departments, not only the Department of Environment, but also DST. We also, uh, of course, the CSIR and other institutions. So we normally partner very broadly with people to ensure that this is done. But as I say, we do not necessarily be the only first mover, of course. Uh, we are responsible as custodians of the water mm. resources, our minister is. However, we need the support of everybody, and we do mm. not necessarily have to be always be the ones to initiate. Other mm. people can initiate, and we take the process forward. However, we're not really saying we are... Um, uh, what, what I mean is that I'm not meaning that uh, it's somebody else's responsibility okay. to lead. It is the department to lead, but we all have to pitch in. 
Well, we are looking at uh, water, how we use water on the continent, some of the water challenges we have. And when we come back, I want to look at the issue of sanitation. How does it also relate to water? And also, I want to look at uh, the issue of uh, droughts. I know that uh, in East Africa, they're experiencing extended dry spells and unusually high temperatures. And some major cities on the continent, water levels are beginning to get dangerously low in the main reservoirs. How do we turn this around? Around as a continent. On the line, we have Dr. Chris Museki from South Africa's Department of Water and Sanitation, and he's from the Climate Change Research Department there. And also, we have Dr. Mateus Dipenar from the University of Pretoria from the Geology Department. Dr. Tabun Kambule also joins us. He's from UNISA's Nanotechnology and Water Sustainability Research Unit. We're going to wrap up the program with some solutions as well when we come back. African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy, of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Well, today we are looking at water. Water is so important in our lives, and I think sometimes we take it for granted. I've got a newspaper piece here, and just looking at it, it's very interesting. It's got some uh, blocks that uh, look at why we utilize water. It was actually in the Saturday Star, which they did a very brilliant uh, uh, really look at water in this past weekend. They have a theme here, water is energy, water equals to equality, water is food, water is health, water is cities. So you can see that uh, water is so pivotal in our everyday lives and uh, it's very great to hear some of the commentary that we're getting on how we can move forward and how we actually improve our water systems in our countries on the continent. And I want to come back to you Dr. Mateus Dipanaren because we've got some challenges especially when it comes to our uh, temperature, climate change and those kind of issues. I was highlighting before the break that East Africa has been experiencing extended dry spell and unusually uh, high temperatures. We know that uh, uh, parts of Southern Africa are are semi-arid areas. Uh, How can we deal with uh, some of the issues when it comes to regional water levels? How do we uh, deal with these climate changes, these temperature changes? Because that is where we need to look at research maybe and find ways on how we can adapt as societies on the continent. Dr. Dipanar? Yes, I think that the biggest concern in the water cycle from climate change is likely not the fact that we might be getting less water, but the fact that it's becoming more irregular. So if we have excessively concentrated or intense precipitation events, that increases the likelihood of downstream flooding and it decreases groundwater replenishment. 
And obviously the opposite also happens where we can occasionally rather have droughts. So management in the long term will become much more important and we will very likely at some stage have to consider looking at better flood reduction systems and better mitigation planning for drought periods which might extend over longer periods like seasons to years and maybe even complete alternative means of storing water that's not exposed to uh, increasing temperatures such as artificially storing groundwater or surface water below the ground. In other words, where we can protect it from changing climate. And I think that's one thing that, as you started saying that, I actually put that down, management. I kind of wrote that down on my script here because I feel like that's what's important about dealing with these irregularities that you highlight, Dr. Dipenar. Dr. Tabunkambule, how important is that factor? I think it's so important how we manage our water systems. That's the key, it seems. It's, it's, it is very important, uh, Benjamin, because like I said earlier, I gave a typical example for a purpose. Um, if we do not manage our water systems, then we, we, we will have an even deeper crisis because like one of uh, our panelists said earlier, um, a, a water crisis does not necessarily mean that we do not have water to give to the people. Mm. It can also be translated to say that we actually can't provide water to the people. For example, like I said, we buy clean water from Lesotho, but because our distribution systems, our distribution infrastructure is, is, is not taken care of, so it's highly corroded, it has become highly toxic, it actually now ends up polluting our water so that we can have to re-clean it before taking it to, to, the, to, to the user. And again, another challenge is that, I'll, I'll give an example, we have water treatment plants around the country, who uses a lot of energy and money and resources to treat water. And then it gets transported to storage tanks because, as you know, before water goes into your into your house, you have to store it somewhere and then pump it from the, from the tanks into your house. And again, it gets polluted because we're not managing our systems well. So from um, a scientific point of view, our failure to manage our system is becoming costly in terms of the costs involved in treating water, which are being now not taken care of, as well as giving water to the people, which is actually of not high quality standard. And again, if you look at the dams, and um, uh, it rains every day. One would be tempted to say, what do we mean we have a water crisis when it actually rains every day? But it goes to what the speaker from the Department of Water Affairs said, that are we doing enough water harvesting? Are we conscientizing our people enough to actually harvest water as much as we can? What has government done to aid people in terms of water harvesting? What have we in academia done to broaden up the knowledge of people in terms of the reality of the scarcity that we have? What is private sector doing to come I mean, into play? Why, why is it that we don't have um, investors mm. investing in the sanitation of the people? Mm. We, we know that water is life and sanitation is dignity. But mm. sanitation in South Africa is not taken care of. About 22% of the households in South Africa have got substandard toilet facilities. And if you go to the rural areas, sanitation just doesn't exist. Why is that so? Why are we neglecting sanitation? Can we blame the people? Should we blame government? Should we blame investors? Who do we blame? What can we do? It's a whole 
complicated metrics which we really need to unpack and it borders on management of what we have and what we could have. Mm. And that's a, a very good point, uh, Dr. Nkambule. And uh, let's wrap it up with Dr. Chris Museki. We have three minutes or so. And sanitation is a very pivotal uh, area that Dr. Nkambule is highlighting here. About 2.5 billion people still live without improved sanitation. And a billion people practice open defecation, making sanitation the least successful area of the MDGs. And we know it's very concerning. And in South Africa, we know we have sanitation problems themselves. It's been in the news for a while now. How do we deal with that area, Dr. Chris Museki, from a governance perspective? Well, the government is already doing something about sanitation. For starters, the government of South Africa has decided that's why to take sanitation and, and club it together with the water now. It's water and sanitation. And our minister has said it uh, several times that we're not only going to look at the water supply and water resources or water services and so on. We also have to look into sanitation sense. It's, 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 it's about dignity. The first thing that the minister, of course, did last year was in the, just the beginning of August 2014. He, he called upon the National Water and Sanitation uh, Summit where we clubbed with other people, including the local government and various institutions, on how to go forward. Now you're saying, how do we deal with it? Currently, we're also working collaboratively with Water Research Commission that has actually done a lot of research around, uh, you know, improved sanitation, sanitation that is waterborne, sanitation that is also conscious of the fact that we also um, a dry country and we do, we do not need only to use waterborne systems. Mm. And also, and, you know, other, uh, Dr. Maseki, sorry to cut you off there, but also we, we know that there's an issue of the bucket system and we need to change that system yes. as well, especially in our formerly disadvantaged areas. Yes. How far are we when it comes to that with the government? Because it's been a controversial thing in South Africa. Well, I don't have the figures with me, but what I know is that the government is engaged in removing and it's, it's it's actually uh, in removing the bucket system. We do not want the bucket system as well. Um, but what I was saying is that the other thing is also a moving target because you, you, you do supply, you do provide the resources, but then again, you have a moving target that we have to deal with. But in terms of removal of, 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 of buckets, we, we are committed to remove the buckets, but I do not have the figures. I cannot tell you. It's so many people that, uh, who, who, you know, I can't give you the figures because I don't have them with me. Well, that's how we can wrap it up. But I think also we looked at during the program at ways that we can actually deal with this particular situation. And I think that there was much of a comprehensive uh, uh, conversation we had today at looking at water. We looked at infrastructure. We looked at climate change. We looked at the issue of uh, how government needs to deal with this issue, but also with uh, independent stakeholders partnering up with governments and uh, the high demand as well that we are seeing and how we as ordinary citizens are misusing water and that we need to get the message across to people like me and you who are actually thinking more how we can use water more efficiently. But I want to thank our guests. I want to thank Dr. Matej Stipanar from the University of Pretoria for joining us. Thank you as well to Dr. Tabon Kambule who has joined us from UNISA at the Nanotechnology and Water Sustainability Research Unit. Thank you to Dr. Chris Moseki for joining us from South Africa's Department of Water and Sanitation from the Climate Change Research Department there. Thank you all for joining us on the program. We really appreciate your time.
Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Fantastic. And just to remind you that when we started the program, we did have Melita Steele from the Greenpeace Africa, and uh, she was uh, the climate and energy campaigner looking at uh, the more climate change issues that are related with uh, water. But let's move on now. It's time for us to get our economics update. Wisani Matebula is standing by. Thanks, Benjamin, and good morning. Electricity cuts by South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, are reported to cost the economy substantially. This has emerged from a presentation by the Department of Public Enterprises to Parliament. This comes as ESCOM's board is expected to decide on the future of its chairperson, Zola Tsuti, at a special meeting today. In another development, the utility CEO, Tiri Somatona, is reported to be challenging his suspension in the Labour Court today. Tutsi announced the suspension of Matuna and three other senior executives earlier this month pending an inquiry into the troubled parastatal. The International Monetary Fund will provide $18.1 million to Malawi. Donors led by former colonial ruler Britain have withheld direct aid to to the Southern African nation for more than a year. The IMF says after completion, a review of Malawi's economic performance, the government is committed to rebuilding trust in public institutions and bringing the IMF-supported program back on track. The global lender also said addressing weaknesses in public financial management was key to restoring donor funding. Neighboring Zimbabwe, the country planning talks with Germany on how to resolve a $739 million debt it owes to the Eurozone's biggest economy. President Robert Mugabe's government owes foreign creditors, including the IMF and uh, the World Bank. Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa says Harare wants to restore ties with Germany. And then uh, the European Union has announced uh, the review of its uh, focus areas with the absence of general budget support to Malawi between 2014 and 2020 being the major highlight under its funding modality, the 11th European Development Fund, EDF. This means that uh, the plight of Malawians in areas of health, trade and education delivery system has been dealt a heavy blow. George Mango has more from Blantyre. From the European Union EU, the main reason is that taxpayers want value for money, hence the restructuring project between 2014 and 2020. Both a senior minister of finance, economic planning and development officials and head of EU delegation to Malawi confirmed the change in policy thrust following the decision by the EU headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. And finally, Nigerian Central Bank has left its benchmark interest rate unchanged at 13% as expected. Governor Godwin Mfiela says uh, the Monetary Policy Committee was also satisfied with the bank's attempts to stabilize the Naira. The currency has dropped from around 165 to the dollar a year ago to 198 this week. And that's how it's looking. Let's move on. Now we have Tommy Kuza to give us our sports news.
Thanks for joining us once again. Stephen Keshi has accepted terms offered to him by the Nigerian Football Federation, the NFF, and is said to be named coach of the Super Eagles again. A member of the NFF's technical committee, Paul Bassi, revealed that Keshi has accepted to continue as head coach of the three-time African champions. When quizzed on the situation, Keshi refused to name and make a definite statement. Keshe was first named head coach of the Super Eagles in 2011, but his contract lapsed after the 2014 FIFA World Cup in Brazil. Back home, South Africa's Bafana coach Sheikh Mashaba has promised to field a strong team against Swaziland for the international friendly at the Somhlolo Stadium today. Bafana arrived in Babani yesterday to a warm reception from the Swazis, and Mashaba has brought his best players, including Tulani Serrero, Andile Jali, Dukelorantie, and Kamukhalo Mokocha from Europe. Swaziland are ranked 163 in the world, compared to 55 by South Africa. But Mashaba is still a confident man, despite not having three key players for the two international friendly matches this week. If you look at the number, we had 30 players, which tells you we have two to three players in one position. So, of course, yes, in the absence of these players, it doesn't mean we say we, we're happy that they're not here. It will give the others a chance to show what they have. Do they deserve to be in the team or not? Football legend Michel Platini was re-elected unopposed for a third time as UEFA president at the annual congress yesterday, proudly proclaiming Europe's soccer governing body to be the best. The 59-year-old Frenchman secured an unopposed third four-year term of running, one of the richest sports federation. UEFA have indicated that they will not back Sir Blatter when he stands for a fifth mandate on May 29th. When he faces opposition from Louis Figo, Michael from Prague, Prince Ali bin Al Hussein, speaking through an interpreter, Platini says there are no hard feelings against Soka's governing body. We can achieve this by hardening our regulations and by the creation of a European Sports Police Force, an appeal which was made already in 2007 after my first election. And in cricket, distraught South African cricket captain A.P. De Vliers has laid the blame for the World Cup semi-final loss to New Zealand on a string of costly errors led by him in his own failure to run out Corey Anderson. Protest captain A.P. De Vliers. We play this game to win, to win, well, to win games of cricket, to um, take glory away home and um, make a difference in a in the nation's heart and hope, um, so we, did, we didn't do that, we didn't achieve that, and it hurts quite a bit, you know, um, got it. We had our chances and we didn't take them. And finally, in cycling, Director General of the World Anti-Doping Agent Suwada, David Homan, spoke about disgrace to former professional cycling Lance Armstrong in Lausanne yesterday, where the organization is holding a WADA symposium. Homan said that a big change was the stance of the professional team who are taking a more active role to stop cyclists doping. I think we've seen some significant changes in the peloton and we've seen some significant leadership by some of the teams uh, specifically making sure that the environment for their athletes, for their teams, uh, does change. That's the end of our sport and back to Benjamin Moshatama.
What an interesting show today. We were looking at water. We didn't even get to the topic of hydroelectricity, which is also a big conversation in Africa and uh, how to actually generate uh, electricity through water. So, hey, maybe it's something that we can cover in the future. And uh, when we went to that uh, particular NAPED Business uh, Foundation uh, Summit, which took place last week, where we were broadcasting from, there are a lot of projects that have to do with this hydroelectricity. So, hey, water is the key for some uh, key issues on uh, the continent. But hey, that's how we wrap it up. Just a reminder that African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Remember you can interact with us on Channel Africa Facebook and you can also tweet us at Channel Africa 1, that's the handle, or SMS us and tell us what you think about our program on plus 27823325905. Also don't forget the Twitter handle for African Dialogue. It's at African Dialogue at African Dialogue and thank you to those who have been actually linking up with us on our social media. But that's how we wrap it up. Until tomorrow, God bless.